Hello, everyone. Joshua Gilliland here, one of the founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks. With me is Christine Peake, and we are going to talk about the Ray Harryhausen classic, It Came from Beneath the Sea. Vintage 50s sci-fi with a submarine. So naturally, I gravitate towards that one. Christine, how you doing? I'm doing very well, Josh, and I'm thrilled to be here talking about cephalopods. Yes, yes. Let's talk about that giant octopus. This movie, uh, it's what, July 1955. We have a nuclear submarine. We're at the height mm -hmm. of the Cold War. And this is the Harryhausen Centennial, so we figured it's, a, it's time to talk about Ray Harryhausen. And there's a lot of wild scenes in this movie and lots of legal issues because monster movies are packed with them. Uh, what were some of that jump right out to you? Well, before we get to the issue, Jess, can we just agree that the, that the star of this production is the cephalopod? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's true with all Harryhausen movies. It's the stop motion creatures that we're here to see. Yes. And um, so definitely that scene where it hugs the Golden Gate Bridge um, has got to be one of my, my favorites. Do you have a favorite? Well, I do like seeing the submarine fight the mm -hmm. octopus. That, that is fun. Also, the, the octopus on the beach in Oregon is also fun. Right, right. And I also appreciated the two arms waving behind the, the ferry building clock tower. Yes, since we're local to the Bay Area, we, again, gravitate towards the local uh, uh, sites. So lots of fun there. So this, this movie begins with a submarine on patrol, and it does look like, you know, the interior of a real submarine. It's cramped. That's supposed to be a nuclear submarine, but it's clearly a World War II design. They end up getting pursued by an unidentified object of some kind. Uh, they have a collision with said object that catches up to them. And a chunk is uh, fouls one of the uh, dive planes or propellers. I, I don't remember which. And so they surface, they have divers go out, and they get a big chunk of octopus that's radioactive that they put in a case, go back to Pearl Harbor for repairs, and they bring in scientists to figure out what is this glowing goo? Does that adequately describe the beginning of the film? I think so, Josh. And, and one of the scientists that we meet is Dr. Leslie Joyce. And uh, Dr. Joyce and an, another scientist, Dr. Carter, in the, the scenes that come next are seen sort of looking over this, this tank and examining the remaining piece that's been stuck in the uh, the submarine. Yeah, and we get nice pseudoscience. We actually get some Mr. Wizard type scenes as well as they're explaining how science works. And that is actually kind of adorable with, look what happens when I add this. And it's, it's total Mr. Wizard. Uh, so yeah, fun stuff, fun stuff. Uh, but we have some awkward interactions with Dr. Leslie Joyce. 
first off, you know, the, the doctors that are brought in almost seem to be there against their will. It's kind of, I mean, you know, you watch this and like, were they drafted? And there's actually a, a, an, an exchange where Dr. Joyce says, you know, have I been drafted? And there are all kinds of problems with that, just with how that works. That's right, Josh. She seems pretty interested in the subject matter, but she really doesn't seem like she intends to stay. She seems like her, it seems like her intent is to go back to her school and continue her work there, not to stay with the Navy and continue to try to figure out what it is that has grabbed this submarine and caused it such problems. Absolutely. And things go sideways from there as they try to examine what happens. And now putting on your plaintiff lawyer's hat, uh, do you think Joyce would have a, a claim of, of like indentured servitude or, or the, the issues of like being drafted and she's a woman because there's a problem with the draft and applying to women? Yeah, certainly, if you take that line in a literal sense, when she asks if she's being drafted and um, she, she appears to be held there um, against her will working for the Navy, um, that that wouldn't work under the traditional um, and current law of, of the draft um, that we have under current U.S. law. Um, it's only men who are required to register for the selective service. Um, and so, in a in a literal sense, um, Dr. Joyce could could not have been drafted. That wouldn't be a a basis to keep her there. Um, yeah. On the flip side there might be an argument for the other doctor, especially if he had served in World War II, uh, he could be recalled. Like, that's possible. Uh, but there is the, the issue of, you know, pulling civilians into a national effort and whether or not and uh, that's valid on, on one that can actually apply. And, you know, can you w- walk us through how that works? So I wanted to point out another interesting um, aspect to this, although although it is the case um, that the, the current law only requires um, men to register, and um, there are there are court cases actually challenging that, and, and the challenge was unsuccessful. Um, there have been quite a few changes in women's role with respect to the military since those cases were decided. Um, so a little bit of background, um, in 1980, the Congress reinstated the selective service registration, um, but only for men. And, uh, there was a challenge, um, uh, in a case, uh, called Rosker versus Goldberg, which was from 1981. And the majority opinion in that case upheld the constitutionality of, um, the, requirement against a challenge under the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment um, that the requirement was discriminatory. And the reasoning underlying that opinion was that the court believed that men and women, because of the combat restrictions on women, were not similarly situated for purposes of a draft or a registration for a draft. And so um, on that rationale, they upheld the 
the discriminatory registration requirement. However, since that time, the prohibitions on women serving in combat have been removed in incremental steps, and um, women are now eligible to serve in combat. So the reasoning of that case has been undercut with the passage of time. Um, and very interestingly, there is a case that is from 2019 that had a published opinion out of the Southern District of Texas. Um, and I'll read the site, it's 355 F sub 3rd 568. And it's currently on appeal to the Fifth Circuit. But the court um, considered another equal protection challenge and it distinguished that prior case, it distinguished roster. And it found it was distinguishable because that dispositive fact in roster that women were ineligible for combat didn't justify the gender-based discrimination any longer um, because the facts had changed. Um, and so the court in, um, in that case, which is called National Coalition for Men versus Selective Service System, it applied a type of heightened scrutiny um, and it asked whether the MSSA serves important governmental objectives and is substantially related to the achievement of those objectives, and specifically whether the male-only registration requirement is substantially related to Congress's important ob objective of drafting and raising combat troops. And it ultimately held that the defendants didn't carry their burden to show that it was substantially related. So it granted the plaintiff's motion for summary judgment and denied defendants, and that case is now on appeal to the Fifth Circuit. So I thought that was just a very interesting development in the law, um, and it, it shows there's potential for this issue to actually return, um, possibly, to the Supreme Court if it were to work its way through the system. And I want to bring up an issue related to conscription of civilians, because that seems to be at play here. And remembering back to a presentation that we did on Rogue One with Judge Mitch Debin, Judge Debin pointed out that the oath of citizenship for newly nationalized citizens includes uh, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by law. He implied that there could be conscription of civilians and that there was other authority for that. Now, I didn't exactly see anything else on point. You know, there could be something with uh, the National uh, Production Act, maybe something with the Presidential Emergency Powers under 50 USC 1701 and 1702, and declaring a national emergency for, you know, putting the scientists to work work, but there isn't, you know, just some, anything on the plain face of the statutes that would highlight civilian scientists having to go work for the Navy. Uh, you know, there might be something that we just haven't seen yet, something obscure that doesn't get applied because, well, we don't have situations like giant octopi attacking San Francisco and fouling submarines and requiring changes. That's exactly right, Josh. I, um, I also struggled to come up with an alternate explanation of how um, Dr. Joyce could be pressed into service. Yeah, it's a little weird. And uh, because women can't be drafted, sure, 
women, you know, we're in combat now. But, you know, like the law's still on the books and it's still written that way. So we'll see if there's something else buried in some text that could get into uh, conscripting civilians uh, into an emergency situation. It's one thing if there's a war. It's another thing if it's just a temporary emergency situation. So let's get into the issues of uh, what today would be a really unhealthy working environment. The, the lab where the doctors are working, the you know, captain's just kind of hanging out at, smoking because it's 1955 and that's what people did back then. Uh, but he, the captain has some serious issues with personal space with the doctor, seems to be hitting on her aggressively. She seems to have uh, a relationship or some casual, no strings or a few strings attached relationship with the other doctor. It's, it's very odd. It's not traditional 1950s. It, it, it certainly is unusual, Josh. Um, and it, you know, there, there's aspects to the which those, to the way those scenes are written that are pretty uncomfortable. Um, and awkward. And, you know, from a, the perspective of somebody watching it in 2020, um, it's, it can be a little jarring, I think, to, to watch those scenes. Um, definitely, Dr. Joyce and Dr. Carter have a prior professional relationship. So I think at one point, they say they've published opposing papers. Um, but they also seem to have sort of a nebulously defined personal relationship as well. And then you, you see the introduction of Commander Pete Matthews, and uh, he seems very interested in Dr. Joyce, even though she's supposed to be trying to work on this very important matter of the cephalopod uh, potentially um, being dangerous and, and possibly attacking the United States. Yeah, it's, you know, this seems a little unfair to sailors, you know, that you know, the stereotype that they'll come ashore and hit on women after being at sea for a long time and, you know, uh, have too much fun to get into trouble. And I don't know if it's a little of that. It's just, it's very odd behavior. It's just borderline, well, no, some of it is super creepy because he's, he's close. She doesn't seem into it. Then she's does it's it's really uncomfortable to watch it's uncomfortable enough that it made me wonder if you if you attempted to apply the modern law of sexual harassment to the situation how would this exactly turn out now of course in 1955 that that wasn't a thing now it's recognized that sexual harassment in the workplace is considered a form of sex discrimination um, and that could potentially violate Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It could also potentially violate California law, though here in the context of the film, it's, it's the U.S. military as an employer that we'd be looking at um, and retroactively seeing if we could apply. But I think um, 
it's interesting to think about. There's definitely some some challenges in trying to even work through how that would possibly work. Um, not the least of which is that Title Seven um, Title Seven may or may not apply to protect somebody in Dr. Joyce's situation. Um, she's sort of in again in this weird nether zone where she's um, she's not a regular employee of the military. Um, although civilian employees of the Army, Navy, or Air Force uh, would have the same right to pursue Title VII actions as other federal employees, she's not she's not formally an employee, um, and uh, Title VII uh, is not thought of as applying to independent contractors. So that right off the bat could be a problem for somebody in her situation. Um, and so she would have to, somebody in that situation would have to work through whether there's any kind of argument that they should be treated like an employee. Um, and I think what, what, you know, got me thinking about a lot of the elements of these tests is this fact that she wasn't really given a choice about whether to work at all or any of her working conditions. Her working conditions are not great, as you alluded to. So there's the smoking, which, again, that's, you know, a throwback to, to earlier times, but they also repeatedly refer to how tired they are. They seem like they're working really hard. They don't appear to get many breaks. Um, she seems, you know, fatigued and frustrated and um, it's not good. No, no. And like, there's like this weird exchange with, you know, Dr. Clark about, you know, like about her not getting enough rest. It's, but is he? How's that working out? What's it's it's just it's so weird and uncomfortable. And she seems to be having issues with both men that it's just creepy. Creepy to watch by today's standards. And she does yeah, she does indeed have issues with both men. Um and so I did I did a little thinking about, okay, well under the two the two theories of sexual harassment that are currently recognized under the law, you know, how would this possibly fit? Could it fit at all? Um, and so the first, the first one I thought of it, the quid pro quo uh, theory, basically it's um, the essence of it is that somebody's supervisor is relying on their apparent or actual authority to try and extort some type of sexual consideration from an employee. So they have to show a couple of things, the plaintiff in order to, prevail on that. So they have to show that they're un subjected to unwelcome advances um, or conduct or comments by a supervisor that has higher authority over them. Um, they have to show the harassment was based on sex and they have to show that the, that the reaction to the harassment affected the tangible aspects of their compensation terms, conditions, or privileges of employment. And again, I think you get kind of muddled on some of these elements on this this first theory. So um, in particular, with respect to this one, I was thinking of Commander Matthews' conduct because he exhibits at various times some very controlling behavior towards Dr. Joyce. And, um, you know, he does appear to have some supervisory capacity over her, whether it's sufficient to to say that he's a supervisor is questionable, just like it's questionable whether there's any basis she could argue um, that she really should be considered an employee as opposed to an independent contractor. Um, but he seems to be the one who's controlling whether or not she has to work and whether she's going to be released, or at least he's delivering those messages. 
Um, then you get to the issue of whether this is this is unwelcome. Um, that can be an issue anytime where the plaintiff actually submitted to the supervisor's advances, as you eventually see Dr. Joyce do here. And so Commander Matthews might try and argue that their eventual relationship, such as it was, was consensual, um, even though there are some other facts that suggest, well, Dr. Joyce was kind of indignant that he didn't ask before he kissed her. And, you know, there are definitely some other statements she makes that indicate that she, you know, wants to preserve her independence. She's maybe not that interested in him. But there's, but there's other contrary facts as well. Um, so, for example, when, you know, Carter says, oh, he's an interesting man, she replies, isn't he? And um, in the scene where they actually do kiss, it seems like they could possibly be mutually interested in each other. So it's really, um, it's really a question of fact. Ultimately, it would be, you know, a jury question whether the plaintiff submitted because they were afraid of losing their job and therefore it wasn't really voluntary or whether um, she actually, it wasn't, it wasn't actually unwelcome. It is so just abnormal to see that, you know, the analysis is just all over the map. And I don't know if that's just 50 storytelling. You know, I didn't call up my grandfather to quiz him on just what happened in the 50s. Was crap like that real? And yeah, it is really bizarre. Yeah, this character is written in a kind of an interesting, there's only one female character. So as far as the element that it was based on sex, it's hard to say. Um, it, it's, it's hard to have a measuring stick because there's nobody else around. There's one female character. Nobody else gets harassed. So it seems like maybe probably based on sex. Um, you know, did she, did she have a, a tangible effect on her job as a result of her reaction? Well, there is that sort of strange scene in the restaurant where she's about to be released and then they go outside and they kiss and then she indicates to him when they come back that she's still planning to leave and he gets pretty upset. He leaves and he comes back and the very next thing that happens is that suddenly she's not going to be released. Um, but, you know, there's alternate explanations in the plot. You know, there's the cephalopod in the machine that is a possible explanation as opposed to just jealousy on the part of Commander Matthews. Um, and some people might also argue that, well, you retained your job. You weren't fired. So that's not a tangible action because nothing really bad happened to you. So even though that scene looks really bad, that last element might be hard for her. But even if she couldn't show a tangible action, she might still try and make out a, a claim under the hostile work environment theory, which also requires that the conduct be unwelcome um, and that she was subjected to verbal and physical conduct of a sexual nature, which it seems pretty clear that she was. And so then the question would be, is this conduct sufficiently severe or pervasive to alter the conditions of her employment and create an abusive working environment? I don't know, Josh, what do you think? I do think it could be considered abusive. You know, she has the commander in her face all the time and in a way that's not welcomed. And then she'll have Dr. Clark, you know, instead of saying like, hey, good job, like, you know, 
gropes her and gives her a kiss. So it's, it's bizarre. I, it's just, it's not a good reflection of people, of men in the fifties. No, I mean, it's certainly burdensome for half, for her to have to even decide how she's going to deal with each of those incidents, which come up fairly regularly. Yeah. It's, it's weird. It's, it's very weird because like her conduct well, isn't exactly consistent either in saying like, no, go away. I don't like this. Cause you could say like, well, she kissed him back. Like there was chemistry there. So it's, it's really, uh, it, it, I don't know if this is just a factor being written by a guy or what, but it doesn't make sense. I think one of the most disturbing parts is when after Commander Matthews kisses Dr. Joyce and she points out the fact that, well, he didn't even ask. And then Dr. Carter's response is, well, that's hardly relevant. <laughs> like, wait a minute. <laughs> she does have agency and it is relevant. Stop that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, to, to your point about um, the writing, this, this was the person who wrote this screenplay was born in 1901. And the EEOC didn't issue guidelines saying that sexual harassment is a form of sex discrimination until 1980. So that's a pretty big gap in time there. And we're, this film falls somewhere in the middle of that. Yeah, this is somebody who lived through both world wars, uh, the Spanish flu, the Great Depression. Uh, the, the, the writer went through some unpleasantness so uh and but at the same time they try to depict her as the modern woman it's, well it's interesting when you think about feminism you think mostly of events that happen in you know the 60s or the 70s um and you don't so much think of the 50s um but you know it could be a time where people were kind of, you know, gathering their thoughts um, about whether, you know, they're satisfied with the, with the role that women had been assigned. Um, and then you start to see, you know, later more public expressions of dissatisfaction with that role. Well, it had to start somewhere. And all these things are a slow burn until they really pick up steam. You know, because that's the way time works and the way people growing up, it's just, it's history. So, like, I, I think there's a causal connection, but again, the 50s was a different time. Right. You, you can see the wheels are turning, the ideas are forming, but they're very, very partially formed. Yeah, uh, and and uncomfortable. But... I mean, we'll give him credit for in good intent. <laughs> so it's it's not like he was a bad guy, but uh, yeah, it's just very odd. Very odd indeed. So yeah, it yeah. Well, with that, let's move on to the less awkward issues and uh, get into what happens when 
you find imprints of a suction cups from a giant octopus on the beach. And let's let's get into the joys of the rules of evidence. <laughs> yes, let's. So, so, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. It's yeah, because again, it's it's Dalbert time. Let's focus on the federal standards and federal rule of evidence seven hundred two on. Do you need an expert witness to say like, yep, that's a suction cup mark from a really big octopus? as opposed to a child's drawing with a stick on the beach. Exactly. Uh, well, you're right, Josh. So rule uh, 702 of the federal rules of evidence does impose a gatekeeping function on the court with respect to um, expert testimony. And so if you were wanting to have an expert testify about something having to do with this sucker print, um, you would need to look at Rule 702 and some of the cases interpreting it to see um, whether that evidence might be admissible. So let's just go over the basics of the rule. So it says that a witness who is qualified as an expert by knowledge, skill, experience, training, or education may testify in the form of an opinion or otherwise if the expert's scientific, technical, or other specialized knowledge will help the trier of fact to understand the evidence or to determine a fact and issue, so it has to be helpful to the trier of fact. The testimony is based on sufficient facts or data. The testimony is the product of reliable principles and methods, it's important, and the expert has reliably ap applied the principles and methods to the facts of the case. And so the case law has developed a number of factors that courts should consider in evaluating this requirement of reliability. So the expert not only has to be qualified, the expert testimony has to also be reliable and relevant. Um, so in looking at reliability, the courts consider uh, whether the theory or technique can be tested, whether it has been subjected to peer review and publication, the known or potential error rate and whether the theory enjoys general acceptance within the relevant scientific community. So Josh, shall we go through these various requirements? Why not? So let's- Why not? So do we have doctors that actually know what they're doing? Are they qualified by knowledge, skills, experience, or training? And when you think of Dr. Joyce and Dr. Carter, I think that's yes. Well, as marine biologists, they're certainly qualified to testify about cephalo cephalopods, for sure. Agreed. Like seeing the marks on the beach. Now, somebody's, uh, you know, like as as you know, you brought up like print evidence, like you know, forensic analysis of footprints. I think that's kind of a maybe because if it's something made by the sea creature, I think that's okay. I think they would be qualified because the test boils down to, is it helpful to the court? And there's no perfect expert. And so if, if a court could go, well, they knew a lot about the subject. They saw what looked like really big uh, suction marks 
on the beach, I think a court would let that in. What do you, what about, what are your thoughts? Well, I think it does boil down to what exactly it is that you are trying to prove. Are you trying to show that there was a giant cephalopod in the area at some point, that this is indeed a print that belongs to a giant cephalopod, as opposed to being a child's drawing with a stick? Um, if that's the case, then I think, yeah, they're, they're probably qualified to testify about whether that appears to be a print that is left by a cephalopod based on their knowledge and, and training and experience with cephalopods. Um, you know, other, other items or elements of proof, um, other facts that you're trying to prove, maybe, maybe not. Um, to narrow down the time frame when it was there, maybe. Um, to identify the particular cephalopod, you know, maybe not. Although in this case, um, there is apparently only one cephalopod that is that size in the time in question. Or at least that's known to be marauding. So that may be not something that you've got to worry about anyways. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think certainly to, um, to show that this is the print of a cephalopod, they're probably qualified. Yeah, I, I don't think a court would go, well, who's more qualified? Who's the most qualified person in this field that could identify those markings? And I think it's going to boil down to them or their colleagues. So, yeah, I think it goes to the weight. It goes to the weight. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, and this moment of evidence has been brought to you by. Well, what about reliability, Josh? Do you think, do you think this um, sucker print analysis is sufficiently reliable for the court? Well, when you look at what's at stake, which could be, if there's a giant octopus around because uh, fishermen are having problems fishing because there aren't any fish all of a sudden and the risk to public health of could a family get eaten, that should be enough for, you know, like the local authority to go, you know what, this is enough evidence to justify a order to close the beach. And if somebody then challenged it, I think a court would go, well, the facts support it, that it's reasonable because, hey, they found a Jeep overturned with all the people gone. Right. I think certainly, I think somebody could certainly testify to their observations of the print. Mm -hmm. in, terms of, in terms of giving an opinion, well, I mean, if you're limiting it to the, to the issue of, is this from a cephalopod? I think maybe you're, you're probably on safer ground um, because there's going to be other cephalopod prints that you could maybe use to, to test this theory and, and compare um, whether or not it's reliable. Um, and if you're trying to branch out, you know, maybe some of these other factors might counsel against this. Has it been subjected to peer review? Well, we don't really know. Um, known or potential error rate? Well, there's only one cephalopod. Um, general acceptance? Well, maybe. Um, and then did they reliably ap apply the principles and methods? Arguable. Um, but there's certainly a lot of corroborating evidence um, on the beach, not the least of which is the local sheriff who gets eaten. Yeah, and there was also the report about uh, the Japanese seal hunters that disappeared as well. Hmm. So, which again, that's very 1950s. That 
that happened. But again, people are disappearing along the water's edge in the Pacific Rim. So when you put the totality of the evidence together, I think you could say, yeah, I think we got a problem here. Let's I think we do. Let's close the beach. Let's let's go hunt a giant octopus before it eats more people. Just as a precaution. Yeah, I don't think that's unreasonable because it's all fun and games until the sheriff who didn't believe it screams like a four-year-old girl in horror and is eaten. So don't when they lie. drive out of there with a quickness, they they blow right through the fence. So clearly they were terrified. Yeah, he was. Yeah, it wasn't like. Oh no, it was blood curdling shriek. So yeah, he he regretted mocking and then he died. So yeah. Well let's let's get to the Battle of San Francisco. And this might be the first or one of the first movies to have a giant monster attack San Francisco. Um, other notable ones include Godzilla 2014. But yeah, it's, it's nice to actually see a disaster movie located in San Francisco because we're Bay Area kids. We're happy to see the, the hometown represented. So we have uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, traffic stopped on it. And they order evacuations, people are ordered out of San Francisco. And, you know, can the you know, what government authority is there to order the evacuation of the Golden Gate Bridge? And what can the government do if you violate that order, which is in no way relevant to what's happened today? Not at all. <laughs> well, and, you know, keep in mind, Josh, too, we're, we're looking at modern law. And, and then to the extent I was able, I tried to see whether um, similar powers would have existed at the time of this film. So if we start with the state and the local government, the state of California and the city and county of San Francisco. Um, in modern times, the California Emergency Services Act is what would authorize the governor to proclaim a state of emergency. And uh, as best I can tell, similar powers would have existed in 1955. Um, the ESA superseded what was called the California Disaster Act of 1945, which also gave the governor the power to declare a state of emergency. So. In a state of emergency, the governor can do um, quite a number of things, um, one of which is to make orders and regulations necessary to carry out the provisions of the act, which have the force and effect of law. The governor can use and employ any property, services, and resources of the state as necessary to carry out the purposes of the act. The governor can also commandeer private property or personnel deemed necessary to carry out the responsibilities vested in him in the exercise of the emergency powers. Um, so uh, quite a number of, of authorities. Um, and the Emergency Services Act also authorizes local governing bodies, um, such as the city and county of San Francisco, to proclaim a local emergency when conditions of disaster or extreme peril to the safety of persons and property exist and the local jurisdiction is unable to control them and needs the combined forces of other political subdivisions to combat them. 
So in those cases as well, the local governing body can promulgate orders and regulations that are necessary to provide for the protection of life and property. Which, so in the case, okay. Yes, in the case of a giant attack or giant cephalopod attack, um, it could, could involve an order to evacuate the bridge and the ferry building area. Yeah, clearly. I mean, that just... We don't have comparable situations in real life besides a virus that can kill people. But uh, it makes sense that the governor would order the evacuation of San Francisco, Fort Baker, probably Angel Island, you know, and get clear. And if you're north of the Golden Gate Bridge, keep going to Petaluma, maybe Santa Rosa, just, just go. And if you're in San Francisco, Sunnyvale is nice. Just keep on driving. Just keep on driving. And stay away while they're dealing with the giant octopus attacking the city. Uh, seems completely rational to me, but call me crazy. In, in this particular case, um, an evacuation order would appear to be very strongly correlated with the preservation of health and safety. Yeah, because it eats people. It crushes Apparently. people. I mean, like, it's, it's, it's big and mean and coming for you. So don't hang out at the water's edge. It's a bad idea. Well, yeah. Josh, we also see a few other um, government entities. We see a, a ton of Navy personnel. Um, doing various activities, placing offshore mines, radar and sonar devices, and an electrified submarine net. And so should we talk about how it is that the federal authorities, uh, the federal military, uh, the U.S. military has a role in this? Well, this might seem like science fiction, but the federal government and states do work together, and they, they have in the past. And this probably would have really been a nice echo of World War II, uh, cooperation where we would have had submarine nets and, you know, uh, civilians on patrols looking for Japanese submarines during World War II and coastal observation and, you know, everyone working together for the greater good. And when you think of, uh, you know, like how federal government and states work, you know, the Navy is responsible, well, one of the branches responsible for national defense. And they close the beaches based upon an order from the Defense Department, which is a little odd, uh, but in the 50s, that probably would have uh, flown easier just given the way society was at that point in time. Today, that would be weird unless you were in a military town. Uh, but, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area is no longer a military town because the Navy left. And so that would definitely be a state issue. Now, under the ESA, the governor can cooperate with the president and the heads of the armed forces and other agencies and with officers and agencies of other states on matters pertaining to emergencies. And the governor may take any steps they deem necessary to put into effect any rules, regulations, or suggestions made by such persons or agencies. 
So there's supposed to be coordination. And, you know, we do see a lot of, like, local authority being delegated between Dr. Joyce, Dr. Uh, Clark, and, and uh, the commander, and other naval personnel taking charge. But they're communicating. They have radio communications. They, uh, uh, it shows government interagency and interstate cooperation the way it should work in an emergency. And that's actually refreshing that the government that's supposed to protect us actually does. So, yay? Yeah, so I would I would agree that this doesn't appear to be some type of martial rule that's being imposed. This isn't a complete takeover by the Navy, um, because you also see them working with the what looks to be the local police during this evacuation. So it does look like they're operating in tandem. It doesn't look like that this is a complete um, substitution of military control, um, uh, which is interesting because when you think of um, military intervention, you often think of it for the purpose of quelling a riot or some other type of insurrection, um, which does have statutory authorization in the, in the Insurrection Act, which is um, been around for a while in various forms. It's, it's um, currently codified at 10 U.S.C. Section 251. Um, that's not exactly what happens here at first. Um, what happens here at first is more, um, well, there could, be, there could be a couple explanations. Um, historically, you, you sometimes did see military intervene for humanitarian purposes if there was a natural disaster. Um, and since 1974, you've had the Stafford Act, which authorizes the president to make a range of federal aid available to states that have been struck by disasters. It doesn't specifically authorize the military for general law enforcement purposes. Um, and it was interesting because in some of the sources I was looking at, they used um, the San Francisco earthquake and fire in 1906 as an example of where you might actually have a natural disaster and then insurrection and riots happening at the same time. So initially, the troops might be deployed to render aid in the event of a natural disaster, but then as resistance to authority grows and you have looting and rioting, then there's a different basis for the intervention. Um, but here, um, it, it really seems like the, and the Navy is there to fight the cephalopod. Somebody has to get the torpedo into the cephalopod, and that's not going to be the local or state authority. So it kind of looks to me like they're just, this is a military event. They're performing a military purpose. They're defending the homeland against a creature that is attacking it. And that's their job. It's, that's their job. And we also see the army have a hand in this as well. So again, it shows two branches working together the way we want them to when there's an actual crisis. So on, on that way or that level, it's, uh, it's a positive view of government and the military on how things should work. And it also has the can-do attitude of weapons seem to bounce off uh, the creature because of its skin and body mass. And you, know, you can't depth charge it because it will just flatten out and... You know, it's, you're fighting something that doesn't have bones. So you need to be able to pierce its hide 
and they figure out a way to do that with a harpoon-like torpedo that would detonate in its brain. And again, that's just a common element in kaiju films is scientists figuring out how to solve the problem in conjunction with the military. And this American kaiju film does that fairly well. Definitely a group effort. Well, they, it's interesting. You want to talk about some of the, the different means that the military brings to bear in engaging with the cephalopod and how effective each of those are? Yeah. So there's, there's a few. So they, you know, they have ships at sea dropping depth charges, trying to like drive it in one direction. They have minefields out, uh, outside the, the coast of California on its way to the you know, San Francisco Bay that it blows through. They have electrified the Golden Gate Bridge uh, as a deterrent, and that doesn't exactly work out, and that's bad. They have an army flamethrower team because, you know, fire bad. And uh, they, they try cooking a little calamari with some of the tentacles whipping around the ferry building. And then there's the submarine attack, which is just fun because it's a nice model submarine and, you know, and a, the big stop motion uh, octopus and to figure out we're going to launch the torpedo and, you know, and it doesn't quite work. And uh, so they decide... Since the, uh, well, since the octopus grabs the sub, they can't fire or they can't, de- they can't detonate because they would destroy themselves. And that would be not plan A. So the skipper decides, I'll put on the wetsuit and go out and, you know, get him to let us go. And just from a command perspective, the captain's not supposed to do that. The captain's place is on the bridge to be in charge. And they they kind yes. of and certainly in harm's way as a result, right? I mean, he he detonates the explosive, but it it affects him, and then he has to be rescued himself. Yeah, by you know the by the you know Doctor Clark, who decides I'll go because every man in this is heroic and a good dude, which again weird mixed message, and he goes out there and saves them. Despite the fact they're in a weird love triangle, they have zero animosity between each other. It is really bizarre. Yeah, they they seem to get along very well. Yeah, that's that's just weird. <laughs> that's just weird. Um, uh, yeah, so they the military again. This is when we had lots of toys in San Francisco. You know, we had Mare Island where we fixed submarines and built them. We, we had a uh, Naval Air Station Alameda where we had aircraft carriers dock. We had uh, uh, Treasure Island, which had the big battleship pier and, you know, great naval facilities there. And all of that left after World War II and went to San Diego or uh, Washington. So on one level, it's kind of fun to see all that stuff. And uh, yeah, 
and then don't forget Moffett Field and Sunnyvale and uh, Mountain View. So, but good stuff, good stuff. Uh, we also see them, everyone stays in their lane for the most part. The police are doing policing. You don't see the Navy or Army doing policing. They're doing fighting. So there isn't really any posse comitatus issues. Everyone stays yeah, I, in, their, yeah. in their lane. I feel like you mentioned the Posse Comitatus Act um, as a limitation, but I agree that it's it's not particularly implicated here because you really don't see the military trying to perform, as you say, a law enforcement function. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. So with that, uh, you know, the rules of engagement for fighting these creatures, well, they don't, okay, first off, it doesn't look like this is a nuclear weapon. It's a nuclear submarine, but the torpedo looks conventional and sounds conventional from the way that the story goes, because you don't want to detonate a nuclear device of any size in San Francisco Bay, because you would irradiate the bay, you'd take out ooh, the California Delta and all the agriculture that that supports and the water that flows to Southern California. It would be a bad freaking idea to go nuclear in San Francisco Bay. That aside, it certainly they, would. Yeah, they uh, seem very responsible. This isn't, we got them, fire. Like they, you know, they're not purposely blowing up the ferry building. Right. And I, I, I think this issue is important to raise, um, I think mainly because that one of their tactics turns out to be a bit of a blunder, that whole electrification. Um, it's supposed to repel any form of marine life and if not kill it, but instead it escalates the situation and it actually accelerates the need to use the torpedo because the cephalopod tries to get out of the water and onto the bridge and then it tries to get out of the water and onto the ferry building and it's sticking its tentacles into the ferry building. And, um, you know, in, in, for future planning, I question whether it might be helpful to, to develop some more specifically defined rules of engagement, which we should probably define as we're sitting here talking about them. Um, so they, they have been defined as directives issued by competent military authority that delineate the circumstances and limitations under which United States forces will initiate and or continue combat engagement with other forces encountered. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's possible that some of these tactics could pose an undue risk to civilians. Um, so I think, you know, just for future reference, because Dr. Joyce does say there's probably more giant cephalopods in the Mindanao Deep, they just haven't come out yet. And could the response be improved by doing further research and developing these rules of engagement so that maybe we can come up with a more streamlined response next time? Well, that would be plan A. I mean, there's the issues that you have with any war planning of don't fight the last war. As in, hey, we learned about the Maginot Line, so let's not repeat that. Well, okay, but that doesn't mean prepare for another army to march in. Beware the Blitzkrieg. Learn, understand. They're not, you know, just because it happened once doesn't mean that you prepare for that battle you have to think about what's going to happen again. And there has to be lessons learned. 
on how to maintain lookouts, watches, like how life would change if giant octopuses were coming up and eating people. You know, there would be more like observation towers along the coast. There probably would be uh, listening devices and the listening devices that were you know, deployed to, to listen for uh, Soviet submarines, you know, could they be modified or adapted for use to hear a giant octopus swimming or uh, Geiger counters of some kind to watch for the radiation spikes of these creatures. So they would need to learn detection and then yeah. how do you mitigate the giant octopus? Uh, what, you know, what kind of kinetic weapons do you need? Or can you use some non-kinetic weapon of, is there a sound that it hates? Because that doesn't mean, do we have to kill all of them? Now, if it turns into an issue of they're feeding on people and, you know, could become the dominant species on the planet, then by God, all means exterminate them. But, you know, that, that doesn't have to be the, the outcome. Right. Certainly, lo locating the cephalopod is an ongoing challenge. They're constantly trying to figure out where the cephalopod is in the film. And the other factor that's important that is alluded to in the film is that the, it's important that the force actually be sufficient to respond to the threat decisively. They're kind of constantly concerned that, well, if they don't hit it right the first time, it's just going to escape and it's going to be faster and then they'll lose their chance. So all of these considerations are important. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. So as we think about this, in this film, what are some of the big lessons that you have from this Harryhausen classic? Big lessons. Um, I mean, I was just kind of fascinated to watch this film in general. I haven't, I haven't watched um, as many monster movies as you have, but I, I loved the octopus. It was my favorite thing um, about the film. And um, I just, I liked I watched a couple of features on how um, he would construct his sets and how he would do his animation. And I just think it's, it's amazing how he was able to set up the scene so that the um, monsters would be operating in the background. And if you look at how the arms work um, in the, in the scenes where the octopus is present, it just, you know, it looks really magical, even though, you know, it's stop action. It is brilliant, and I, I adore Harryhausen's style. I mean, like, I just I find that cool, just neat to see. And this does have a lot of his A game. We have the giant octopus. We see it on shore. We see it come out of the water. We see it attack two landmarks. We see it fight a submarine. That's everything a monster kid could want. Yeah, I especially liked when he was, um, so he has the arm coming through the ferry building and then it kind of inches its way in and then it it bumps up. So it kind of crunches the arch and it kind of works its way into the building. It just looks, um, it looks like the, whatever's behind that arm is a, a living, breathing, intelligent thing that thought to do that. It's part of his magic. And I mean, We'll talk about other Harryhausen movies since it is a centennial, 
but this is a fun one to begin with since there was there's a lot of good stuff here and we'll we'll save analysis on the others for the other movies but it's it is clearly fun it is clearly fun and i mean like this this film does have consequences there's a big death toll like lots of people die and yeah those guys in the helicopter the sheriff there's yeah i mean i'm I'm assuming a lot of people were crushed by the arms as they were um coming up onto land in in san francisco definitely were we we do see on-screen deaths and so that's wild and again a 1955 movie but it's also fun seeing san francisco in the 50s that's neat of how the city looked then right i feel like the bridge and the ferry building themselves are characters in this film as well yeah and they're timeless because well they still stand they're still there we take care of them and the ferry building does have lots of good places to eat wine bars it's fun it's a happening place and yeah, it's just, it's neat to see our hometown or home area depicted in a film. And it's good. Uh, and on one level, the three main characters do have a very San Francisco relationship. So there's that. <laughs> That's one way to look at it, for sure. They, they were ahead of the curve. Anyway, uh, that aside, you know, the, the squid and the, or squid, the octopus and the submarine are very endearing to me because that's everything I do enjoy. And uh, yeah, this movie is extremely dated when you look at the social structure and that we have one female character with lines. Uh, and there are other women in background and like restaurants, but like, that's it. Uh, I don't think any other women on camera actually have any spoken words. No, I don't, I don't recall any either. I think the, the most timeless thing about the film are the landmarks and the cephalopod. And I'm just glad that watching the film gave me the opportunity to say the word cephalopod as many times as we have said it on this podcast. You really do like that word. Uh, I do. I will point, I do want to highlight that Dr. Joyce, the progressive side of the film, shows her in charge, shows her briefing the press, and being an authority. And that seems very progressive for the time. Yeah, that's true. And the reporters, um, the reporters don't question her. At times, it it does seem like her authority is getting questioned, um, you know, by the the naval officers or um, the people that first come and they try to deliver their findings, and she's upset because they don't believe them. But definitely, when it reaches the point of, okay, it's time to tell the public what's going on, everybody takes her word as very authoritative, and that's refreshing to see. So it was they did that well. Did that very, very well. So with that, uh, we will talk more Harryhausen in the months ahead since it is a centennial and we will celebrate it accordingly. 
appreciate everyone who took the time to listen. Christine, thank you for your time and your amazing outline in legal research. It's truly impressive. And where can people find out more about your firm? Where can they find out more about our firm on our website at www.mcmanuslaw.com? Fantastic. Where I first clerked right out of law school, fond memories summarizing depositions. Good times, good times. So with that, everyone stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you all soon.